Today we're going to begin to examine John 12. We've gotten all the way to John 12. And John begins this section with his account of a dinner party that was held in honor of Jesus just prior to his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you know, the beginning of his Passion Week, his week of suffering, and then which, you know, kind of culminated with his death on the cross and then resurrection in three days. And so this is John's account of a party that transpired just prior to that whole chain of events beginning. The party was organized um, by Jesus' close friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus of Bethany. And we're going to look at three things this morning, three major points. We're going to look at the service of Martha. We're going to look at the sacrifice of Mary. And we're going to look at the self-interest of Judas. So those are the three things that we're going to look at. That's how I've divided this text. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. We're going to be focused on verses 1 through 8. John 12, 1 through 8. It seems like many of you have already turned there or you've got it on your phone or something else. Uh, in any case, I'd like to begin with number 1. Number 1, the service of Martha. We see this in verses 1 and 2. I'll read the text. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him, that's Jesus, at the table. <clears throat> First thing to notice here is that John jumps ahead two months in the storyline. Okay, from chapter, the end of chapter 11 to chapter 12, there's like a whole two-month period in there. John omits everything that Jesus did during that time while he was laying low in Ephraim. And you might think, well, why? Why would you leave out so much great information? Because there was a lot of wonderful things that Jesus did during that time. Well, we have to remember that John's purpose, again, and I've said this many times, his purpose for writing this gospel was not to provide an accurate chronology or a blow-by-blow -blow account of the life and ministry of Jesus, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The synoptic gospels have to do with kind of a blow-by-blow -blow chronology. John's is not about that. John clearly stated his purpose in chapter 20, verse 31, and this is one of the verses we opened this entire series with over a year ago. Here's his mission statement for writing this gospel. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So whenever you think of the gospel of John, think evangelism. The whole purpose for writing this gospel is to record certain things about Jesus, but to also uh, talk about um, the gospel and, and to uh, basically beg and encourage people to believe in Jesus because he is who he said he is. And so this gospel was written not as a blow-by-blow, blow, but as a piece of literature, scripture for evangelism. And that's what John clearly states. As the Passover drew new, uh, near, Jesus leaves Ephraim and travels along the road to Jericho toward Bethany, 
the hometown of Lazarus, obviously, whom the Lord had recently raised from the dead. This is how this little section opens up. And he enters Bethany six days before the week-long Passover celebration begins, roughly a week before it begins. Jesus' friends in Bethany wanted to honor him for bringing Lazarus back from the dead and for returning him to his family, so they threw him a dinner party. They just basically threw him a, a party, a dinner party. And they had a lot of different people that came, kind of a very cool way to honor the Lord. Now, earlier in his ministry, Jesus visited Bethany, and he dined with Martha and Mary, and we see that in Luke 10, 38 through 42. So this isn't the first time that Jesus has had a dinner party or a meal with these people in Bethany. And if you recall the story, Martha worked in the kitchen and prepared and served all of the food while Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened to him teach. You know, so you had one sister doing all the work, the other sister kind of camped out at Jesus' feet. And, and we know the story. It says that Martha got angry. You know, she was frustrated. She felt overwhelmed. She had so much to do, and she got frustrated with Mary, and, and she asked Jesus to command her to get up and help. Well, you're the God of the universe. You're the Messiah. Can you tell her to do something? If it comes from you, maybe she'll get up and do it. But Jesus rejected her request and admonished her for being distracted by all those tasks by not focusing on what she should have been focusing on, and primarily for criticizing Mary for not helping her. Now, we must understand that Martha's service was important, and, and, and the Lord understood this. Jesus understood this. He wasn't slamming her because she was serving him or because you know, she, was, she was doing things for him. That's not at all the point. The problem was that she got distracted, and she started to complain and what happens when we're serving the Lord and we begin to complain? Obviously, our service to the Lord is no longer about Jesus. It's about us, right? And this is what happened in that scenario. She was a bit overwhelmed or whatever. She didn't think it was fair. She was totally distracted by her emotions and the tasks. And there you go. She turns the party into a self-focused event. And she's upset and cranky. And Jesus just says, this is not the way to do it. This is not the way to do it. Now, I bring this up, this past event up, because this was not the case here in John 12. You will see no admonition or correction come from Jesus toward Martha here. Nothing of the sort. Completely different. Same setting, same probably kind of food and all that. She's still serving. Things are still happening in a, in a like manner to before, but completely different scenario. We see Martha serving once again, but this time she maintains the proper focus, the proper perspective. I like what MacArthur wrote about this. He says, though others were served also, he's speaking of the party, though others were served also, Martha's service on this occasion was primarily directed at Jesus and was commendable for two related reasons. It was motivated by loving gratitude to him and by a desire to generous, uh, generously honor him in a way she best knew how. And then he says this statement, which is really cool. Although it tends to be overshadowed by Mary's dramatic act of worship, which we're going to look at, Martha's humble service on this occasion was no less commendable and pleasing to the Lord. MacArthur helps to frame the context. Different scenario than before. 
completely different. And Martha's service and what she was doing in all this food prep was just as valuable to the Lord, just as worshipful as what Mary did, even though what Mary did seems to be quite extraordinary. We don't want to discount uh, a saint who fixes a urinal over a saint who preaches the gospel. Both things are commendable. Both things honor the Lord. And this is what happens in the church. You get these weird hierarchy opinions of people. And, well, what he does is extraordinary. What I do is almost nothing because I just vacuum the floor. No, what you did by vacuuming the floor is no less commendable than me preaching a sermon or somebody serving on the elder board. Jesus receives all the service to him, and it's all a blessing to him, and it all honors him, and that's what counts, and that's what matters. And so... Different scenario playing out here. The fact of the matter is Martha's heart was utterly full of loving gratitude for her Savior. So much so that her tasks didn't seem like tasks at all. You ever just gotten lost in service to the Lord even though you might have to do medial difficult things but you just don't think about it because you're just entirely focused and saturated by Him? You just forget about you know, the actual nuts and bolts of what you're doing and you just do it. I, I think Josh and I kind of experienced when we were working on the sound system here the other day, yeah, we had a lot of stuff to do. It was sweaty work. There was insulation all over. It was nasty, but we were just thinking about the Lord. Didn't bother us. And this is what happens when you maintain the right perspective. This service of Martha's here, it was heartfelt. It was joyful. And, and it was full-orbed. She gave her time her talent, and her treasure. Her time and talent went into preparing the menu, shopping for the groceries, preparing the meal, and serving the meal. Her treasure, what did it go into? The purchasing of the groceries. Usually the person who's cooking does the shopping because they know exactly what they need. Martha literally pulls off our mission statement for service. She gives her time, talent, and treasure. She does it all right here. Now, John includes the detail. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table to show the reality of Lazarus' resurrection. Now, we know that Jesus had just recently raised him from the dead. It was approximately two months before this party. We saw it in the text. There was many witnesses there. It's a historical fact, blah, blah, blah. But even at this point, there were people contesting it, saying, no, he was just in a coma. He wasn't really dead. And here, John records what he sees and shows that Lazarus is here and he's very much alive. He's not in a tomb dead anywhere. He no longer stinketh. This is just a point of reference to prove and show that Lazarus had actually been raised. He was not a, a ghost, an emanation, or a spirit. He had been literally raised to life with a real body with flesh and bones and all of the needs and conditions of a real body. I mean, he's here about to participate in a meal. He had to eat. The presence of Lazarus affirms the great resurrection to, uh, truth in John 11:25, which we studied several weeks ago, when Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The presence of Lazarus here proves our own resurrection, proves that although we will die physically unless the Lord returns before that, we will be raised to life and we will never die again. Incredibly, this simple dinner scene that we have here in the text, it foreshadows a spectacular future event 
the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Jesus will be at this supper. Believers who died and are raised again uh, at his second advent will be there. And those who never died but are found alive and believing when he comes will be there. Then the number of guests will be complete. So this simple little dinner party is a foreshadow of the marriage supper party with the lamb that will transpire after Jesus returns. MacArthur and other commentators make an interesting point here. They have an opinion that's kind of fascinating. They say that Lazarus's posture, reclining at the table, suggests that he was a guest at this party rather than the host, which means that this party did not occur at his home in Bethany. Now, I don't know how they pick up on that, but that's what they're stating, and I think that's very interesting. So the question is, if the party was not held at Lazarus' home, as it had been in past events, during past events, whose home was it held at? If it wasn't at his home, at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home, whose home did it take place at? Well, we find the answer in Matthew 26, 6. It specifically states that it was held at the home of Simon the leper. Simon the leper. The Bible provides nearly no details about this man. Uh, we know that his home was in Bethany and that the party occurred at his home. That's about it. That's about all the Bible says about him. Now, his nickname suggests that he was either a leper or a former leper, not deaf leopard, right? I mean, if, it, if your name is Simon the leper, you either have a leper in your family and they gave you the weird nickname, or you were a leper, or you are a leper. Why would you call somebody Simon the leper? I mean, that's not a very complimentary term since... Lepers were totally banished and hated. If his nickname suggests that he was a leper or a former leper, and since Simon had a home and lived in a regular community, it has to mean what? He was a former leper. He didn't currently have leprosy. Lepers, as I said, were hated and despised. They were banished from normal society. They dwelt in literal leper colonies outside of town, outside of the city gates. And when they traveled around, they were required to warn others of their condition by carrying a sign and shouting, unclean. They had to give people fair warning as they entered a community. They weren't even really supposed to, but when they did for grocery shopping or whatever, they had to tell people that they were unclean because contact with one could meet, result in what? You getting leprosy. We must understand that in the first century, there was no treatment or cure for leprosy. And I don't know if you know this or not, but leprosy can be cured today with antibiotics. So it's not as, I guess it's terrifying, but it's not as terrifying as it was. It doesn't literally eat you alive if you get treated. And back then, those who contracted the illness usually died of circulatory failure. It, you know, just invaded the inside of your body, not just your flesh and skin. If there was no cure or adequate treatment or cure for leprosy back then, how did Simon the leper become a former leper? Jesus. That's it. It's logic. And, 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 and it's not just logic, it's, I would call it fact because of how many lepers he actually healed. Early in his ministry, he touched and healed a leprous man. And literally, right at the onset of his ministry, there's a leper that comes up to him and everyone scatters and Jesus does it. And Jesus reaches out and touches him. You did not touch lepers. You could get leprosy and you would be rendered spiritually unclean. And Jesus reaches out and puts his finger on him. 
and he heals him. And he warns him not to talk about the miracle with anyone because he didn't want to get, you know, riotous-sized crowds already built up that would, you know, uh, uh, would mess with his ministry, impede his ministry. And he tells this guy, look, I've healed you, but go away and don't say anything. And what does he do? He turns around, he goes, and he tells everybody. <laughs> I think I would, too. I know I have leprosy. I no longer have leprosy. I can come into the 7-Eleven. You know, I would, like, go crazy. You can read about that in Mark 1, 40 through 45, and Matthew 8, 1 through 4. Was this man, that, this leper that Jesus touched and healed that went away and, and said, I won't say anything, and about two blocks later exploded and had signs and everything and you know, had neon above him, I got healed by Jesus. Was this particular leper Simon the leper? Maybe. In Luke 17, 11 through 19, we read about Jesus healing 10 lepers simultaneously. Bam, 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 right down the line. Of the 10, only one took the time to stop and thank the Lord for healing him. The rest of them just, ah, and took off. One of them says, ah, wait a minute, he just did something phenomenal for me. Turns around, starts to interact with Jesus, thanks him, bows before him. Now, this, it's interesting when he healed these 10 lepers, it, it actually happened right after Jesus left Ephraim, right before he got to Bethany to go to this party. So the healing of these 10 lepers happened right before this event that we're studying. Pretty amazing. Simon, the leper, may have been the one who stayed to thank Jesus. And he may have offered the use of his family's home in Bethany for this party. That's what I think happened. I think he was healed. He was welcomed back into his community. He was a couple of days ahead of Jesus. And he goes home. He goes to the synagogue, presents himself to the rabbis as you were supposed to. You were supposed to show them that you were well. It was like seeing a physician. You're good. Here you go. You're no longer a leper. Here's your get out of leper free card. Go back to life. He goes back home, presents himself to his family like, wow, Fred's home. You know, a huge party. Hey, let's have Jesus over. He's the one that did it. I think that's how it played out. I think this was his home. Early tradition says that Simon the leper was healed by Jesus and that he became a faithful disciple of Jesus. So that's number one. We see this service of Martha as well as some, some other details, but she's serving at this thing. She's doing it with heartfelt service, a, a heart filled with love for Jesus. She gets lost in her tasks because it's all about Jesus, and she's serving it up. Now let's look at number two, the sacrifice of Mary. We see this in verse three. The scripture says, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, a few details while we build this up. We see that she took a pound of expensive anointment and, and, uh, ointment and you must, anointment, hey, we'll just change the word. The ointment was used to anoint, it's anointment. We must understand that the pound here reflects Roman weights and measures. And so a Roman pound consisted of 12 ounces. Ours is 16, right? So it's a little lighter than our pound. So we're talking 12 ounces here. In other English translations, the word perfume is used instead of ointment. How many of your Bibles say perfume instead of ointment? If you have a NASB, I believe it says 
um, I would encourage you to immediately run out and buy an ESV. I'll just wait till you get back. No, I'm just kidding. You're good. But some of them say perfume, and I think that's a better rendering because ointment sounds like something you put on a scratch, right? Sometimes our English translators pick words that are accurate, but they don't kind of capture what, what we need to read. This is a, a perfume. Nard, it's <laughs> N-A-R-D, sounds silly like a weird word. Uh, nard comes from, it is an actual product, and it comes from the root of a plant that is found in the mountains of northern India. It's also called spike nard because it comes from the spike of this plant. So this is nard, it comes from a plant, the root of a plant in the mountains of northern India. Now, it says in the text, this nard was pure. That means it hadn't been tampered with, it hadn't been reduced and had another substance added to it. It was of the absolute highest quality, which meant that it was way more expensive than regular nard or whatever. It was not subpar nard. This was the highest end stuff. So, subpar nard, I'm just rolling today. Just, just fun. I should be a hip-hop guy, right? Yo! No, I just fell apart right there. So let's break down what we have. We got some details, right? We got some facts. So, so what do we have here? We have a 12-ounce bottle of super, super expensive imported perfume. That's what she has there, okay? That's what it is. Now, when you buy higher-end fragrances, uh, fra fragrances, fragrances today, you usually get about an ounce or slightly over an ounce, right? Have you ever noticed that? You go out and you buy something from like Liz Claiborne or Chanel or whatever, and, and the bottle's this big, but you look down in there and there's that much perfume in it, and you pay about 100 bucks for it, right? That's just the way that it's made. That's just the way that it's sold. Fragrance manufacturers like Chanel give, give you a very small amount of perfume or cologne, but it is so well made and so concentrated that one or two sprays will last all day and even multiple days. Have you ever noticed that? How many guys here, and maybe gals, I don't know if they make it for gals, but how many of you guys have ever bought a bottle of Axe body spray? You get four ounces for $3 and it lasts five minutes, right? There's a reason why people saturate themselves in it. You have to keep applying it like every 10 minutes. It does not cover up BO. I know I'm a DJ. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's vastly different from these high-end fragrances. There's a reason why it's three-buck chuck. It's like cheap wine. Don't go there. Mary's, the point I'm making is that Mary's perfume was extraordinary. It was imported. It was exotic. It was top of the line. It was the Chanel of her day, right? And Chanel blue for men, best fragrance ever. Go out and buy some, but don't stop tithing. It's a great fragrance. It is, but so is tithing. Uh, that's a fragrant offering to the Lord. It was valued. Now listen to the value of this perfume that she had. It was valued at 300 denarii. Where do we see that in verse 5? Judas actually says, look, this could have been sold for 300 bucks. What is 300 denarii? It is equivalent to a full year wages for a regular laborer. That's a lot of money, man, for a regular laborer. What is that today, like 20 grand? I don't know what a regular laborer gets. I'm not a regular laborer. You know, I haven't been one since I was a teenager, but I didn't make a whole lot. I made $3.35 an hour. Remember those minimum wage days? But just think about it. Even $3.35 an hour times 40 times 52 weeks, that's a whole bucket of cash for a bottle of perfume. 300 denarii. Just imagine with me, just, just saving all of your paychecks for one year so you could buy a bottle of perfume. 
This is why I go with Axe Body Spray. It's much cheaper. Target has two for one. Now, I don't think that this is the way that Mary went about this. I mean, who could actually save up a whole year's worth of salary to buy perfume? I mean, she had living expenses, right? She had things she had to do, so that's, a, that's just not even logical. She had living expenses like us. I could never save up a whole year's worth of wages. I have bills to pay. I could save, but I can't save. It'd take me a lot of years to save up a year's worth of wages. So I think what happened was she saved money over the course of many years and possibly since childhood. The vial in which the perfume was stored added to the value. It was made of alabaster. You see that in Matthew 26, 7. Alabaster is a white or pinkish translucent stone that was used back then in the manufacturing of vases, flasks, and vials. Now, the question becomes, why would Mary go through so much trouble to buy a bottle of perfume? Are you that vain, woman? What is she doing? Why would she do this? That's a lot of money. Well, in those days, it was fairly common for Jewish women to purchase and collect items for their wedding week and keep them in a special trunk or chest. And this may have been Mary's original intent for that perfume. And I say wedding week because when a Jew got married back in the first century, it was a week-long celebration, not just one night like with us. And so these women, as they're single, hoping to meet Prince Charming someday, they would save up and they would buy and they would collect items and they would store them in a wedding chest. And I believe that's very likely what she had done here. And yet, during this party, she spontaneously gets up and retrieves her expensive alabaster vial of imported Indian perfume. She walks over to Jesus. She pops off the lid and, and she proceeds to gently anoint or pour the perfume over his head and it runs down his neck, shoulders, torso, legs, and onto his feet. So just envision this with me. It's a kind of a candlelit room flickering. People are kind of, and they didn't sit in chairs like us, but they're kind of reclining at the table. And Jesus is at the table, and Lazarus is there, and probably Simon the leper and others. And she disappears for a moment and comes out of her room and then walks over to Jesus gently, not to startle him or anything, and pops the lid off this thing and begins to pour it on his head. And then it begins to flow down his body. Full body anointings like this were were usually performed on the deceased prior to burial. Why? Because it would help to mask the odor of the you know, decomposing body in the tomb. They didn't have, uh, what do you call it, embalming, where they, you, know, you take the blood out of the person, which helps to preserve the body longer. They didn't have anything like that. The Egyptians were doing it back then. That's how their mummies have been around for 5,000 years. But the Jews would just simply coat the body in expensive fragrances and, and oils and aloes, and then they would loosely wrap it up and put it in the tomb. So this anointing is a full-body anointing, head to toe, but that's not something you would do in an instance like this. It's something you would do to prepare a body. Mary performed the ritual as an act of worship. She took her most prized possession and sacrificially offered it to the true and perfect bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. She gave what she was saving for her earthly husband to her heavenly husband. 2 Corinthians 11.2 talks about Christ as our heavenly husband. But she doesn't stop here. 
She doesn't stop here. Mary not only anointed Jesus, she also integrated another ritual into her act of worship, foot washing. Foot washing was very common in those days. People wore sandals and, and their feet would get dirty, dry, and cracked. They'd just be tore up. You wore sandals everywhere you went. Even the Romans, their soldiers, the centurions, their battle-hardened soldiers fought in sandals. I'd be like, toe stomp, and your feet would get tore up. I can't even imagine what feet used to look like back then. They're tore up today, and we got a lot of good stuff for them but back then. So when a person entered a Jewish home, the owner would have someone, usually the lowest-ranking servant, wash your feet and dry them with a towel. It was a service that families performed for guests and visitors and strangers. And so you'd come up, knock on the door, hey, it's right here, yeah, come on in. And the first thing they'd do is sit you down and somebody would wash your feet, get you cleaned up so you could spend some time in there with some nice clean feet. Kind of, I can't really rest when my feet is tore up, right? You too, or are you okay with tore up feet? You'd just come in and it was, a, it was an act of hospitality. It was a kind thing that they would do for people. And Mary performed this lowly task for Jesus, but when she proceeded to dry his feet, she doesn't use a towel. She uses her hair. Now this is extraordinary. This is just incredible. Our society, I want you to listen very closely, and I hope I can get through this, because I was devastated as I was studying and, and, and realizing this act that Mary had done, and then paralleling it with myself. And our society determines, and I'm not saying I agree, I'm just stating a fact. Our society, our culture, determines a woman's physical beauty by what? Their height, their leg length, their facial structure, their body shape, their eye color, their eye shape, all of those things. That's how our society figures out whether a woman is pretty or not on the outside. But in ancient Jewish society, a woman's physical beauty was determined by her hair. It was literally all about the hair. Just like my master bathroom is every Sunday when Rachel's getting ready. Seriously, I'm like, good night, just put some gel in it. She's like, I don't use gel, I use paste. <laughs> you judge a woman back then by beauty, you're not looking at her leg length. You're not looking at those things. They looked at the hair. If the hair was beautiful and well kept, just kept and well groomed, that was a sign of beauty. Vastly different from our culture. It was still going on, you know, after the church was born and all these things, Peter you know, he addressed Christian women when he learned that they were following that societal pattern. It was a problem for Christian women. I mean, they were formerly Jewish women, usually. There were some Gentiles, too, but he wrote, Your beauty should not come from, from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles. You see the value right there. And he mentions a few other things, gold jewelry and fine clothes, 1 Peter 3.3. 3. Gives you an idea of how important hair was then. Like most women, Mary's hair was very important to her. She undoubtedly spent a lot of time grooming and working on it, braiding these various things. It's what women did. 
by using her hair instead of a towel. <laughs> Mary, she communicated something very profound and beautiful to the Lord. It was as if she was saying, Lord, I love and adore you so much that even the dirt that touches your feet is more valuable to me than my most important physical adornment. That's just incredible that she loved him so much that I'll settle for your dirt. I'll use my hair to mop up your dirt. I don't think I've ever worshipped the Lord like that. Have you? At that level. Let's summarize the first half of verse 3. It shows that Mary lovingly sacrificed three things. She lovingly sacrificed her prized possession when she took her highly expensive imported perfume and anointed Jesus with it. This one isn't as clear, but it's here. She lovingly sacrificed her prominent position in her household. In her household, she was like a chiefess. She was not a foot washer. She was high ranking in her household and her family. And she sacrificed her prominent position in her household, and not just in her household, but in her community, because this family was known. They had prestige. They were honored. She sacrifices her prominent position in-house and in community when she assumed the role of foot washer and washed Jesus' feet. Third, she lovingly sacrificed her most important physical adornment when she used her own hair to dry Jesus' feet. Wow. The statement, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You see it there in the text. It was John's way of describing how everyone at the party benefited from Mary's worshipful act. Everyone there could smell that lovely, beautiful imported perfume. Everyone was saying, what is that? Oh, she's anointing Jesus. Look at her. She's drying his feet with her hair. That's extraordinary. But they were enjoying that fragrance. It filled the whole house. Everyone there could smell it. And we mustn't forget how everyone there also benefited from Martha's worshipful act, right? They all got to eat the delicious food she prepared for Jesus, did they not? When we worship Jesus, others benefit. Have you ever thought about that? When, when we worship the Lord, especially when we come together here, others benefit from our worship. When you worship Him with your treasure, when you give generously to His cause and to Him because you love Him, my family benefits. I get a paycheck which keeps food on my table clothes on my back and on my kids backs and a roof over our head gas in our car power in this building the rent paid 
So many people benefit when you worship the Lord through your giving. And when you don't worship the Lord through your giving, we don't benefit from that. When our singers and musicians worship Jesus up here on this stage through their voices and instruments, this congregation benefits. You benefit. When our nursery and kids camp workers worship Jesus through teaching our young ones the gospel, children and parents benefit. When our hospitality and janitorial teams worship Jesus through their unique special talents, visitors who come to this church and our church family benefits. We have a clean place. It's organized. God has graciously structured things in such a way that when His people worship Him, people benefit. We see this in the text, and we see it all around us, don't we? That's Mary's sacrifice. That's how she worshiped the Lord on that night. Number three, the self-interest of Judas, verses 4 through 8. But Judas Iscariot, this is all happening at the same time. Mary's doing her thing. Here's Judas. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, parenthetical, he who was about to betray him, that's never good when that's said of you, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Judas Iscariot the one who later betrayed Jesus, he's one of the 12 disciples, the betrayer, the one who sold him out later. He was absolutely outraged by Mary's worshipful act. He considered it a gross misuse of, of a valuable resource that could have been used to aid the poor. And I want you to note something. You might want to write this down. These are Judas's first recorded words in the New Testament. Search any gospel, the very first thing that he says is this. What a way to introduce yourself. Just goes to show that he was never right, as some say. Well, he kind of fell from grace. He never had grace. He was always an enemy. I want you to note how the words that he spoke were not words of encouragement or of genuine curiosity, but of venomous criticism. When Judas started to realize that Jesus had no intention of meeting his messianic expectations, you know, conquer Rome, establish his kingdom, exalt the disciples, especially Judas, his true colors began to shine through. To avoid a, a total loss on his three-year investment, Judas took whatever he could get. Jesus has been talking about dying. He's not who I, he said he is. I have no hope in him. He's not going to do what he's supposed to do. So what does he do? 
He resorts to stealing and trying to get his while he still can. As treasurer, and it's amazing to me that he was given the money bag, and he was appointed as the treasurer, which wasn't a high position among the disciples, but he was trustworthy because he had at least lied his way into proving it. He had everyone deceived. As treasurer, what did he do? He stole cash from the ministry money bag, and he put it in his own pockets. This is what he did. When an offering came in, he sifted some right out of there and put it in his own pocket. How much came in today, Judas? 220 bucks when there was 330 that came in. This is what he was doing. Now, John didn't realize what Judas was doing at this time because Judas had everyone fooled except Jesus. But later on, he figured out that Judas's protest was nothing more than an act. He didn't care about the poor. He was upset because he could have lined his pockets with more money if the perfume had been sold instead of wasted on the one who disappointed him. I mean, you can clearly see Judas's hatred for Jesus in this text. You can see it. It's just blatant. He would have rather had 300 denarii in his pocket than to see Jesus honored and worshipped with the perfume, wouldn't he? Well, don't pour that on him. You can see his bitterness. You can see his hatred, his anger. It's there. And you can see it in just a most extraordinary way when he sells Jesus out. How much was Jesus worth to Judas? 30 pieces of silver. Judas was like many of today's SJWs, social justice warrior. You familiar with the term? Oh, they're everywhere today. Everywhere out there making justice. They're warriors. They fight for justice. You know how to cure social justice warriorism? Hand them a rifle and put them with real warriors in a war zone. That's how you fix it. Well, never mind. I won't go protesting everyone's rights anymore. But Judas was a, he was an ancient type of SJW. He fought against poverty while profiting from it. Judas was like Robin Hood in reverse. He stole from the poor to give to himself. He was a hypocrite. Notice Jesus' response to him. Leave her alone. This is not a kind phrase. This is a sharp, sharp rebuke. And it shows how jealously our Lord regards any attempt to hinder, check, or discourage the zeal of his own people. One of the names of God is El Kanah. And it literally means jealous. God is jealous for his people the way a husband is jealous for his wife. God does not want to share his people with false gods or idols just as a husband does not want to share his wife with other men unless he's a total weirdo pervert. God does not want anyone or anything hindering our commitment and devotion to him just as a husband does not want anyone or anything hindering his wife's commitment and devotion to himself. I don't know about you, but I don't want any, anyone getting in the way of what Rachel and I got going. And it makes me jealous to think about it. And guess what? I will fight. That's why I'm lifting weights, so I can fight. I'm going to be like Tom, just buffed. 
just look at people. They're like. And you know what happens here in this text? This is precisely what Judas attempted to do when he criticized Mary's worshipful act, to, to get in the way of her worship, her commitment, her devotion to Jesus. And, and, and you know what happened? That, that Elkanah spirit or attitude arose in the Son of God. And he cuts loose and rebukes the hypocrite and thief. She'd get in the way of what she's doing for me right now. And sadly, Judas was not the only disciple who needed correction here. Can you believe that others joined in with him? Yeah, what's up with that? That could have been sold for the poor. Now, they were probably sincere in what they were saying. They probably wanted to sell it and give to the poor. That wasn't Judas's intention. But in any case, they deserve to be corrected as well because they joined in with Judas and attempted to frustrate and mess with Mary's worshipful act. You can read about them interfering and joining in with him in Matthew 26, 8. A better rendering of the phrase that she may keep it for the day of my burial would be she kept it for my burial. That would be a better rendering. It's a little confusing the way that the translators of the ESV have done it. She kept it. She kept the perfume for the day of my burial. Think of that. Now, if you attended a dinner party with Martha, Mary, and Jesus, where would you find Martha? In the kitchen, throwing down like Julia Child. At the dinner table, serving it up like Flo. Mel's Diner. Now, she was sassy. I think Martha was probably sassy. But if you went to a party where these people were, you would see Martha, what, in the kitchen preparing, doing her thing. You would see her serving, right? Where would you find Mary? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach. And by sitting and listening to Jesus, Mary seems to have drawn certain conclusions others were unable to draw, including some of his own disciples. She knew that Jesus' death and burial were near. She knew this. Others didn't. He had said it many times, but they were just like, and during the party, knowing this, having this knowledge, which is a revelation of the Holy Spirit in these moments where she's actually stopped, not running around with a chicken with her head cut off doing stuff, but she's listening to Jesus. She's hearing what he's saying. She understands that his, his, his death and burial are coming. What does she do during this party? She spontaneously decides to use her vial of expensive perfume to prepare Jesus for these things. But instead of following the normal custom of applying the ointment or lotions or what have you to the body after death, she cracks it open and does it while he is still alive. He's there. She wanted Jesus to know how much she loved him before he suffered and died. I'm not going to wait till he's buried to do this. I'm doing it now. Jesus puts a prophetic spin on Mary's costly act. It prefigured the costly burial that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus performed for Jesus on the day of his crucifixion and death. John 19, 38 through 42. So roughly a week before Jesus dies and is buried, Mary does something that is an actual prophecy of what's going to happen a week later. Phenomenal. And that's what Jesus says. She kept it for my burial. That's what he meant. 
Jesus also stated, For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. It is foolish to believe that certain forms of government, communism, socialism, etc., or that government agencies and programs can rid the world of poverty and put an end to the pain and suffering that it brings. Poverty is the result of a fallen world, which means that it won't end until the world is transformed by Jesus Christ after his return. Until then, poverty shall remain. Jesus is saying, you're always going to have the poor. They're going to be here until this is finalized. And Jesus' statement also completely overthrows transubstantiation, the theory that Jesus' physical body is present in the bread and juice of communion. When Jesus ascended, his physical body left the earth. He is now physically seated at the right hand of God, and he shall remain at the right hand of God until the Father sends him to gather together all his people, destroy his enemies, establish his kingdom, and rule on earth. When we experience the presence of Jesus, we experience his divine presence, his spiritual presence, not his literal physical presence. He is right now as I speak, seated as a physical person with a physical body, with flesh and blood. He is that person right now sitting at the right hand of God, and he has not left that post. And yet others say, well, he comes to us every Sunday when we have the bread and juice. We're actually eating him. No, you're not. He has not left his post. He is there. But he is also here because he's omnipresent, not in his physical form, but spiritually as God. I like how Zwingli put it. According to his divine nature, Christ is always present with his people. According to his human nature, he is in one place in heaven at the right hand of God. Transubstantiation, gone. This is my paraphrase of verse 8. This is, this is me pretending to be Jesus speaking. You'll have plenty of opportunities to honor the poor. And I think he's speaking to the other 11 because they sincerely wanted to use the proceeds for the poor. He's not talking to Judas because Ju he knew Judas's M.O. He says, I, I believe he said what he meant was something like this. You'll have plenty of opportunities to honor the poor, for they will always be with you. Since my physical presence on earth will soon come to an end, use this opportunity to honor me. Bare minimum, don't intervene or interfere with her trying to do that. What she has done is very beautiful. I don't know if you knew this or not, but... Jesus honored Mary for honoring him. John doesn't include this detail. Matthew does. We find it in Matthew 26, 13. Listen to what Jesus said after rebuking Judas and, and correcting the other disciples, you know, and telling them, look, honor me now while you have me here. You can deal with the poor when I'm gone. He said this, truly I say to you, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what Mary has done will also be told in memory of her. Wow. She honored him. He honors her. Closing. Like Martha, we are to serve Jesus with our time, talent, and treasure. Martha was a talented cook and hostess. 
Her spiritual gifts were probably service and hospitality, I would think. She used her talents and spiritual gifts to serve Jesus, and quite literally, he was there physically. We are to use our talents and spiritual gifts to serve Jesus, and we do this when we serve each other. That's how we do it. Like Mary, we are to cherish Jesus above all things, above all others, including self, and we are to give to him sacrificially. When King David wanted to build an altar to offer sacrifices to God, a wealthy Jebusite named Aronah offered to give him a parcel of land so that he could build, you know, for free, so that he could build the altar on. He said, look, I got a parcel of land right over there. It's a beautiful piece of land. It's up high. It overlooks this whole area and all that. I'll give you that, and you can go build your altar up there and, and make sacrifices to your God. It's cool. But David rejected his offer. David said, I will buy the land from you for a price. Why? I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. David paid full market value for that parcel of land. He built an altar and he made sacrifices to God. And that parcel of land has become the most famous parcel of land in history. It is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. David understood that for his worshipful act, his offering to be true and acceptable, it had to cost him something. It had to sting. He had to make a, some kind of sacrifice to be able to afford to do it. He took from something he might have been planning to do and said, no, I'm giving this to the Lord. And you know what? Mary understood this principle and so did Martha. If giving is, is super easy for us because it doesn't impact us financially and thus cause us to depend more and more on Jesus, the plain truth is we're not giving sacrificially. We're giving out of the abundance of what we have. We're not even coming close to what these gals did here. We can get so robotic with our giving. Well, I just give this much every time. It doesn't affect my bottom line. We're already wrong if we're thinking like that. We're just merely given out of the abundance of what we have. Mark 12, 44. Our giving should cause us to have to make sacrifices to do it. And when we do that, that honors the Lord. That lines up with what Mary did. That lines up with what Martha did. That lines up with what David did. That lines up with what countless saints who understand this principle truth have done for ages and ages. And like Judas, there are folks in the church today who love to criticize other people's service to the Lord. Well, I don't like the way he does that. Well, I don't even know why that church is doing that. They should have put that money into that over there, and it's everywhere. They'll tell you, man, you shouldn't give your money to a local church. You should give it to this cause or that cause. Don't waste it on McHenry 1209B. Give it to the children's fund. What are you doing? And if you were to carefully examine those critics' lives, you'd probably discover that they aren't even doing the things they're telling you to do. 
hypocrites. They are also like Judas in that they are mere actors. Boy, they have incredible stage presence. They know our lingo. They are fluent in Christianese. Well, I like the atonement and the sacrificial offering of the lamb and, you know, they know what to say. You ask them a question. Well, here, this, this, this doctrine. You know, they know and rehearse their lines and they can recite them whenever necessary. They play their little part. They boast of their love for Jesus, but their true M.O. is love of self and personal gain. They're everywhere. My question to us all is, who are we like? Martha the servant? Mary the sacrificer? Or Judas the self-interested hypocrite and thief? The actor? We must realize that it was the grace of God and Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that made Martha and Mary who they are. Do we understand this? They didn't make themselves that way. Their attitudes and actions were the direct result of God's saving and sanctifying grace and the Spirit's regenerating work and presence. If we have the saving and sanctifying grace of God in Jesus Christ, if we have the Holy Spirit, then we should be like Martha and Mary. In fact, we should exceed them. You know what Judas represents in this text? I mean, we can juxtapose him with Martha and Mary. They represent something. He represents something. They represent the, sanctif- the saving and sanctifying grace of God and the Holy Spirit that work in them. He represents the opposite, the absence of God's saving and sanctifying grace, the absence of the Holy Spirit. If we are like him, we have yet to be possessed by the Holy Spirit and reborn spiritually. And if this is you, dear friend, call upon the Lord Jesus. Ask him for mercy. Ask him to save you. Repent and believe that he lived for your righteousness. He died for your sins. He was buried to settle your account. He rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. Believe that about him. Believe what he's done. Accept him. Accept that truth. Believe it with your whole heart. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Don't be like Judas. He was near Jesus, but he refused to come to Jesus by grace through faith. Jesus said of Judas, Woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Amen.